Well, good morning. Let me add my own welcome. My name is Paul. It's a great privilege to be with you these mornings as we're looking at Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. We've just got a, a short passage we're going to look at today, but one of the books that I was reading described it as the most complex passage in the whole of the Bible. So we're definitely going to need God's help as we look at it this morning. Let me lead us in prayer and ask for that before I read it to us. Our Father, you tell us in your word that you esteem the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles before your word. You tell us too that your word never returns to you empty, but always achieves the purpose for which you sent it. And so we pray that you might humble us before your word, help us to love and glory in your son, the Lord Jesus, as we read and study it this morning. And please produce fruit in us, the fruit of righteousness, lips that praise your name and lives that demonstrate your kingdom to the world around us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read to us then. We're in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to read to us verses 17 to 20. 17 to 20. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven." be great if you might keep that passage open in front of you. Uh, we have three more weeks together looking at Matthew chapter 5, including this one. And my aim over these three weeks is pretty bold, I think. It's that each one who ends up watching these talks will grow in our commitment to living a righteous life. It may be, I'm sure, that some who are watching, it's never been a priority for us to live a, a life that is pleasing to God. My prayer is that it will become one. It may be that for others it's been a lifelong ambition. And my prayer is that it might grow further. We've seen already in the Sermon on the Mount that Christians are people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, but will at times be persecuted for it. We've seen that our good works are to be on display to the world around us. But what are those works? What does a, a righteous life look like? And how can you and I become more godly? It really matters. We've just read verse 20 in which Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But the scribes and Pharisees were famous 
for their righteousness. So does Jesus really mean what he says? Is that really where he sets the bar? And if so, what hope is there for any of us? And besides, if you've been around churches for any length of time, you might be asking, hang on, I thought that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I thought it was all about the work that Jesus did on the cross for us, not about the works that we do for him. So why are we now talking about the righteous things that we do? How do those two things fit together? And I hope this morning we're going to see an answer. But first, we just need to back up a bit and see how this all fits into Matthew. We've said a a couple of times already in this series that the big headline of Matthew so far is that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven has come. Uh, The very first verse of the gospel announces Jesus as the son of David. That is the forever king promised by God in the Old Testament. And because God's king is here, God's kingdom is here too. So John the Baptist, Jesus both preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But that begs the the question, especially in the first century, how does everything that's happening now in Jesus relate to everything that came before it in the Old Testament? In the Old Testament, if you wanted to live a righteous life, you obeyed the law. It was simple. But what does that look like now that Jesus has come? That question is in Jesus' mind for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, the the main body of the sermon. We've had the introduction in verses 1 to 16. The main body runs from chapter 5, verse 17, all the way through to chapter 7, verse 12, and it's framed at both ends by references to the law and the prophets. That's a Hebrew way of talking about the whole of the Old Testament. And all the way through, Jesus is stressing that he hasn't come to abolish the Old Testament, but rather to fulfill it, to make possible the relationship with God to which the law and the prophets pointed but which they were never fully able to deliver. A relationship in which we know God as our father, just as Jesus knew him as his father. With that in mind, let's dive into our first point this morning. It's about Christ and the law. Christ and the law. And the headline is, he fulfills it. Now, I'm sure that at some stage, most of us will have wondered or we've been asked by a friend whether the God of the Old Testament is different to the God of the New Testament. Maybe a question you have even as you watch this morning. The usual idea that people have is that the God of the Old Testament is full of fury and vengeance, while the God of the New Testament is full of mercy and grace. But Jesus says, no, that The two halves of the Bible aren't two separate stories about two different gods, but one story about one God with one purpose. And all of it, says Jesus, centers squarely upon him. Verse 17 is very clear. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
Uh, The word abolish is used elsewhere of destroying a building. In a legal context, it means something like annul. But Jesus didn't come to set aside the authority of the Old Testament. Verse 18, truly I say to you, he goes on, until heaven and earth disappear. Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He even underlines the point. Truly I say to you, the law is here to stay all the way to the end of time, right down to the last dot of an I and the last cross of a T. So there would be no place for anyone describing the Old Testament law as being vengeful or unloving. It is holy and righteous and good. The psalmists say it is perfect and sure and right and true and pure and flawless. They say that it revives the soul and gives light to the eyes. It makes wise the simple and rejoices the heart. And that's why in the Gospels, Jesus accepts the Old Testament's divine inspiration. He assumes its historical accuracy He teaches its eternal validity and he submits to its moral authority. He does what it says. He obeys the law perfectly because he didn't come to abolish but to fulfill it. I want to mention a a number of different ways in which that happens. First and most obviously, the predictions of the Old Testament come true in Jesus. Um, Twelve times, just in Matthew alone, we're told of things that Jesus says or does or has done to him explicitly and specifically to fulfill predictions that were made in the Old Testament. So he's, um, he's born of a virgin in Bethlehem. He's rescued from Egypt. He grows up in Nazareth. He goes to Galilee. He heals people of sickness. He speaks in parables. He enters Jerusalem on a donkey. He's betrayed by a friend and slaughtered like a lamb. All of it to fulfill specific predictions from the Old Testament. And then there are loads of ways that Jesus fulfills other Old Testament predictions without it being spelt out quite so explicitly. I once had the, the privilege of baptizing a Jewish man who had come to faith in Jesus. He told us that as he was growing up, he despised Jesus for claiming to be the king of Israel. But when he came to read the New Testament for himself, that all changed because he started counting different ways that Jesus fulfilled his own Jewish scriptures And he said when he got past 300 of them, the penny began to drop. That Jesus wasn't some heretical false prophet as as he'd been told, but rather the yes and the amen to all of God's promises. So Jesus fulfills the specific predictions of the Old Testament. But then he fulfills its general patterns as well. We can think of the the great people of the Old Testament. Every prophet from Moses on points us ahead to God's ultimate prophet, Jesus himself, the word made flesh. Every priest from Aaron on points us ahead to God's great high priest, Jesus Christ, our perfect mediator. 
Every king from David on points forward to great David's greatest son, Jesus himself, God's forever king for everybody, the king of kings and lord of lords. We could think of the offerings of the Old Testament. Every sacrifice from Passover on points ahead to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus himself, who died once to bring us to God. They all begged the question, how will God finally deal with the problem of sin? And Jesus is the answer because he didn't come to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. That was the shadow. He is the reality to which it points. Again, we can think of the promises of God. So many promises in the Old Testament were left hanging, not yet fulfilled. But as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, every one of them finds their yes and their amen in Jesus. We can think even of the places of the Old Testament. There was a garden paradise in Eden because when we die, we go to be with Jesus in paradise. There was a temple where God dwelt because ultimately the fullness of God would dwell in bodily form in Jesus. There was a promised land because ultimately Jesus died to give us rest in his promised new creation. That's why he could say that all of the scriptures were about him. They were like the the pre-match build-up. He is the main event to which they have been looking forward. One last example here before we move on. It's that Jesus fulfills the law at the level of prophecy. This is a slightly more technical point, but there's a verse in Matthew 11, verse 13, in which Jesus says that the whole of the Old Testament prophesied until the coming of John the Baptist. Uh, I sometimes compare the law and the the prophets to being like a painting, therefore a, a portrait drawn by God that not only reveals his character, but also looks forward and tells us what life is going to be like in his perfect kingdom. When the law said, don't murder, it was because in God's kingdom, there would be no place for murder, neither for any of the anger and hatred that leads to murder, but only for love. When it said, don't steal, it was because in God's kingdom, there would be neither theft nor selfishness, but only generosity and kindness and self-sacrifice. And in that way, as we turn the pages of the Old Testament, its whole fabric is driving us on to the future. It tells us that God's perfect heavenly kingdom is coming. And then when Jesus turns up, he says, it's here, now in me. You might like to imagine yourself standing in the the grandest room of a beautiful country house. And as there always are in those places, there would be amazing portraits on the walls. There'll be, I don't know, beautiful Chippendale furniture on the floor, Savonnier carpets everywhere, priceless first editions on the shelves. But the lights are turned off and the curtains are are pulled and the blinds are down and there's no national trust worker with a torch to show you around. So you can just about make out one or two shadows in the room. But it's as though there's a veil over your eyes. And the beauty of all that's there is hidden from you. 
And the Old Testament on its own is a bit like that. But when you read it in the light of where it's heading, when you bring to it the light of the life and death of Jesus, then the veil is removed and the curtains are open and the blinds fly up and the light floods in. And suddenly all of its treasures are revealed. I once had a conversation with a Jewish lady whose son had become a Christian in which she tried to explain to me that to her mind, her son had betrayed their Jewish faith. I tried very gently to say to her that I didn't think he'd betrayed it at all. There's even a sense, you know, in which he's the only true Jew in the family because he is the one who had embraced the reality to which their faith had always been pointing. I remember a preacher putting it very provocatively but well when he said, in theory, a Christian could walk into a synagogue and pick up a treasured copy of the Old Testament and say to the rabbi, do you know this is a Christian book because Christ fulfills every word. That's our first point. The second is about our own relationship to the Old Testament and to the law in particular, Christians and the law. And the headline here is that we obey it. Christians and the law, we obey it. Let's start in verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Well, we all know that our world hates hypocrisy. Uh, when a celebrity flaunts themselves in front of the cameras and then complains about the invasion of their privacy, we, we smile at the irony of it. But think of the hatred that there was for those politicians who first instructed us to stay at home during lockdown and then drove across the country to visit second homes or whatever else. Our world hates hypocrisy. And if there's one place that we really hate it, it's in the church. Mahatma Gandhi is reported as saying, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. There's some doubt actually over whether he's ever said it, but someone must have done. Someone else said, uh, Christianity claims to change you for the better, but you wouldn't always know it from looking at Christians. So I take it that it's a good thing that Jesus expressly forbids the relaxation of God's standards. He hates hypocrisy more than anyone else. And his intention in verse 19, therefore, is to leave one or two shifting a little bit uncomfortably in their seats. At the very least, he has the Pharisees in mind. Some will know that they were a mixed bag with God's law. They love to parade their commitment to it but really they'd relaxed its standards they'd taken um, the history books tell us god's ten commandments and reduced them to 613 separate rules they had 248 do's and 365 don'ts one for every day of the year and they said to people Obey our interpretation of the commandments 
and you will have kept God's law. That meant they'd missed the point completely. One of the functions of God's law was that it was meant to spotlight for us just how far short we fall of God's standards. But the Pharisees had so limited its prohibitions and so extended its permissions that they'd reduced obedience to a smug box-ticking exercise. And Jesus says, woe to the one who relaxes God's standards and teaches others to do the same. But the Pharisees aren't the only ones in view. Because did you notice that verse 19 suggests that even some who are within God's kingdom might relax God's standards as well? I guess it could be talking about churches or church leaders who say to people something like, you know, the Bible is just a human book. It's culturally bound. It's a useful touchstone, but it's no longer our supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. I guess, too, we could make the same mistake sitting in the pew. We could allow ourselves to get away with living to a much lower standard than that which we know to be God's standards. We might know that Jesus tells us to flee from all sexual immorality, for example. But I guess we could deceive ourselves into thinking, well, surely it's okay for me to flirt with a little bit of sexual immorality, whether that's online or in the flesh. Or we'd know that Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. But we deceive ourselves into thinking that must be a word for someone else who has much more than I do. Or that he says, in your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And we could lower the bar by telling ourselves it's fine to blow our fuse with the kids or to bear grudges with someone else for year, years. And maybe even worse, Someone turns to us for advice, asks us to help them to know how to live, and then we teach them to relax God's commandments as well. My hunch is, is that much of our church generation in the UK is so immersed in the world that we're sometimes even unaware of the ways in which we relax God's standards every day. And so verse 19 is a reminder for us too. Jesus wants us to do what the law says and to teach others to do the same. Now we do need to say, don't we, that Jesus doesn't want us to obey every single Old Testament law in exactly the same way that the people of Moses' day obeyed them. We know that because in just in chapter 15 of Matthew, for example, Jesus himself sets aside the food purity laws of the Old Testament by declaring all foods clean. And then in his death, he renders obsolete the laws of the sacrificial system by being the full and perfect and final sacrifice that the law had pointed forward to. And we're not a, a single God-governed nation state anymore. So there's another whole bunch of laws that don't apply to believers in the same way anymore as well. 
Beyond that, you may know that Christians continue to disagree over the exact place of the Old Testament law in the life of the believer today. It's one of the thorniest questions around. Ultimately, it's a matter of conscience over which we must never divide, I think, in our churches. For what it's worth, my own basic approach is to try and avoid any neatly packaged answers and to remember that Jesus says he came to fulfill the whole law. And that must mean the bits that people sometimes today called the moral law, as well as the so-called civil and ceremonial law too. And so when I read the Old Testament law today, I first allow it to, or try to at least, allow it to convict me of my sin and to drive me to Christ for forgiveness, the one who obeyed the law perfectly and died for my failure to live the life I should. And then as one who has been saved by grace, one who's been given a place in God's kingdom, as it were, I then take each individual law back to the Lord Jesus and ask him, Jesus, now that you've saved me by your grace, how do you want me to obey this particular law today? Because God said of Jesus, this is my son, listen to him. Not to Moses or to Elijah, first and foremost, but to him. And Jesus himself told us to make disciples of all nations and to teach them to obey everything that he commanded. And so the way that we honor and obey the Old Testament law today is by honoring and obeying the one who fulfills the law. That's the big principle. The way we honor and obey the Old Testament law today is by honoring and obeying Jesus because he fulfills the law. He is the one who paid for our law-breaking with his blood. He is the one who writes his law on our hearts. He's the one who enables us now by our spirit to live the sort of kingdom life of which the law was a shadow. There's so much more to say on that. I'm sure you've got questions on it. Please do ask any of the elders in this congregation or older Christians, if you know them, to help you with this. But I trust that the headline is clear. We're not to relax the standards of God's law, but to obey it in and through Jesus. Well, let me draw some of our threads together as we close. And I want to stress as we close that when we think about righteousness, we need to remember that it is both a gift that God freely gives to us at the very start of our Christian life and a goal that he sets for us for the duration of our Christian life. It is a gift and a goal. We'll think about the gift bit first. It's wonderful news this because Paul says in Romans that left to ourselves, there is no one righteous, not even one. He spells out the implication elsewhere when he says, don't you know, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Most of the time in life, we compare ourselves to the people around us and we conclude that we're not all that bad. But when we lift our eyes and compare ourselves to the righteous perfection of God, we realize we are bad. 
We're in desperate need somehow of a righteousness that is from outside of ourselves that could be given or transferred to us. Well, listen to one of my favorite New Testament verses. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, speaking of Jesus, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or another verse written to some Christians. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, literally made righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Here's another one. That those who believe in Jesus are justified, made righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And it strikes me, as I hope it strikes you, just how kind our God is. First, he's honest with us about entry into his kingdom. Our need is for a righteousness from the outside that only God can give. And then having been honest with us about our need and knowing our weakness, at the very moment that we're united to Christ by faith, he gives Christ's righteousness to us. He credits all of the perfection of Jesus into our account once and for all. In such a way, get this, God sees you as perfectly righteous in every way if you're someone who's trusted in Jesus. Just think of the the detail of that with me for a second. When he looks at your temper, he sees it as perfectly righteous. Your integrity, perfect. Your sexual history, your prayer life, your evangelism, all of it perfectly righteous. Righteousness is a gift so that no one can boast and to the praise of his own glorious grace. It's a gift. But then it's a goal as well. Jesus says there are, there are lots of things that the world worries about. What to eat, what to wear. But you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Not seek it second or third or when you have the time and the inclination. But seek it first. He says here, obey my commands. Teach others to do the same. And you will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Well, lots of people have set themselves goals in lockdown. I wonder if you have. Learning a new language. Starting a new instrument. Getting better in the kitchen. Getting fitter. uh, Sorting out the garden. Here is a a lifetime goal for every Christian. Seek first his righteousness in your life and in the life of the Christians around you as you help them to live a kingdom life as well. I love what the Apostle Paul says to the Philippians. He says, I know that I haven't already obtained this. I'm not already perfect, but I press on to make it my own 
because Christ has made me his own. He says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. And friends, for all of the complexities of this passage, that is my prayer for us, that we will rest in the gift of God's righteousness and that we will strive for the goal of righteousness in the spirit and with all the energy that he supplies. Think of it. Your life can honor and reflect the character of our righteous Lord to the world around us. What a privilege that is. Let's pray together. Our Father, we begin by confessing that we know we are not righteous. That our hearts are far from pure. That we fail to be the people that you would have us be. Even as Christians, we fall short of your standards day after day. And so we rejoice again that the Lord Jesus is the perfectly righteous one. That where we fail to live by your standards, he succeeded perfectly in every way. That he obeyed the law that he'd come to fulfill. That he was willing to die on the cross to bear the curse of the law. So that in him we might be blessed by you. Thank you that he was willing to die. So that in him we might live. Thank you that he was willing to be made sin so that in him we might be credited with all of his righteous perfection. We praise you for him and we pray that you would guard us and help us to guard against this danger of relaxing your standards. Instead, help us please to obey Jesus in every single area of our life, every day. Meet us at our point of need. You know where we struggle with that most of all, so please help us and help us to teach others to do the same. And we pray it to the glory of your name. Amen.